So last year, about this time, I started a, a campaign that um, is very important to me. Anyway, I started a campaign that is very uh, important to me, that's very uh, dear to my heart. And it was met with a, a mixed response. There were, there were people on the eldership who uh, felt that I was wrong. There were people in the congregation who came and challenged me directly to my face. But I, but I feel passionately about this. The only appropriate meal that you can eat on Christmas Day is roast turkey, bread sauce. <laughs> you show me where in the Bible the wise men or the shepherds sat round with a leg of lamb. You cannot find it. You cannot find it. We introduced uh, Haley Studer. I don't know if she's here today. She's a Morgan sister to turkey and bread sauce. And this is a direct quote I want to read from you. It single-handedly changed my life and now how I associate Christmas and Jesus. It single-handedly. And so what I want to share today, if we could put up the first slide. For 35 minutes, a British Christmas. I want to take you through some of the traditions that I believe are sanctioned by God, and will, if you embrace them into your spiritual disciplines, you will have a greater revelation this Christmas. First one. Well, actually, there's a, there's a sub one. Don't give me this Santa rubbish. He is Father Christmas. It makes sense. He is the Father of Christmas. It's a, this Santa thing, it's a rubbish name. I know in America, they, uh, they write letters to Father Christmas, and they waste expensive postage. They, they put it in the mail, and, and what happens? It, it gets lost. We have this sorted in the UK. We, we get the children to write their letter to Santa, to Father Christmas. <laughs> You're wasting your time, not mine. They write this letter, they pour their heart out, and then we take it, and we set it on fire, and we burn it in the, in the chimney, and it gets to the North Pole. It just makes sense. Think about it, people. Hanging stockings. I see stockings hung by the fireplace, hung up the stairwell. No. Obviously, the right thing to do is to have it in your bedroom by your bed so we can teach children there is nothing unusual about a weird bearded man creeping into your bedroom at night and leaving gifts. It makes sense. Just think about it, people. Obviously, we have the Christmas meal. We have Christmas crackers. We have mince pies. We have a whole range of these things. And one of the things that I always look forward to, and I, I'm sure is in other cultures, in other nations, is Christmas movies. Now, I'm not just talking about It's a Wonderful Life, A, a Christmas Cow, Home Alone, the one that are, um, you know, particularly Christmas-themed. But I remember in the day before Netflix, before on-demand entertainment, where you had to watch, if something was on BBC Two at 9 p.m. on a Tuesday, your only option to watch it was at 9 p.m. on a Tuesday on BBC Two. And so every single year, we would get a special Christmas bumper edition 
of the Radio Times that would have the listings of all the TV programs over the Christmas season. And in the back of it, there would be like an index of every single uh, movie that was there. So you could find it by name and then find out. And there was always such glee, such excitement as you looked to see what movies were premier, uh, what movies were coming this Christmas. And so there were certain movies that would repeat every year. And it's the same for Christmas and, and Easter as well. I have this bizarre uh, connection with uh, Easter, with the movie uh, Hook, with Dustin Hoffman and Robin Williams. It was always shown on Easter Monday. It makes no sense to me, but it, it was. That's just how it was. And so with Christmas, we would always see the Indiana Jones movies. Indiana Jones is a hero of mine. Think about it. Loves his theology. Great academic professor. Amazing with the ladies. I mean, you can see the similarities. You can see the overlap. You can see that they obviously based the character on me. And so within the three movies... And we ignore the fourth one. The fourth one doesn't count. It's an extra canonical gospel. It should be disregarded. But within the movies, the, the plot is basically the same. Certainly in the first one and the third one. The Nazis, I mean, always whenever there's a sentence that starts with the Nazis, you know it's going to be a good story. There are certain villains that you kind of go, oh, I wonder what happens in the one. Nobody likes the Nazis. Nobody wants the Nazis to win. I was, side note, I was chatting to someone uh, in, in, uh, who was here in the morning service, and they were telling me that in their notes for this preach, they had written, Nazis are bad. So I'm glad that that can be an agreed piece of wisdom. But anyway, the Nazis have uh, found out that there is the, uh, the Holy Grail. This is the supposed... Uh, cup of Christ that was used at the Last Supper, that Joseph of Arimathea then went to the cross and collected uh, the blood and water that fell from the pierced side of Christ, that had been hidden for thousands of years that apparently Arthur and Merlin had got a hold of. And anyone who had the Holy Grail had the opportunity to experience eternal life. And so the Nazis were after this. This was going to be their thing that would allow them to take over the world. And so Indiana Jones with his father, played by Sean Connery, because that makes sense somehow, uh, are, um, are running towards this, are, are, are trying to get hold of it. And right at the end of the movie, they enter into the cave where it is found. The Nazis have shot Indy's dad. He's dying there. And so he knows the only thing I can do is to go and grab the Holy Grail. I can go and get it, then I can save my father. And so he must go through three different uh, trials and tribulations that will test him to find out if he is a man of pure heart and a man of faith. And he passes all three of these tests, and then he enters into this cave. And he is presented with this knight, this knight from the crusade who's been there for hundreds and hundreds of years. Let's take a look. I mean, first off, I think uh, if turning into some skeleton and exploding wasn't a giveaway, the line he chose poorly was uh, uh, helpful to explain the situation. The mistake that Walter Donovan made, apart from obviously being a Nazi, was that he assumed that Jesus was like any other earthly king. That Jesus would use his wealth, uh, uh, so he would use his power and wealth uh, to benefit himself. 
that like the other earthly kings, that he would therefore create a cup that was full of gold and diamonds and jewels, something that kind of uh, reflected his own, his own sense of value and his own sense of self-worth. For Walter Donovan, this is what he expected the king of kings to drink from. But Indiana Jones, being the better theologian, he got that Jesus was king, but he was also a carpenter. That he had actually spent his life rejecting the trappings of the world, of worldly wealth and fame, instead chasing the posture of a servant. And so his cup would therefore reflect this truth. And this simple truth underpins how we understand Jesus. We see this humble servant, and in it we see this revelation of how God chose to interact with his world, of how God chose to come not in power and not in might, but in servanthood and humility. And so this, for me, is the backbone of the Christmas story. That the King of Kings, that the Lord and Savior came not in the way that the world was expecting, but in a way that revealed God's heart towards us. And so today I want to explore well, what does that mean to worship Jesus at Christmas? What does that mean to look at that infant babe in the manger? What does that mean as we kind of look at this nativity picture that we are so used to? What is it that it is communicating? And I think there are three key things that Jesus, even as this infant child, shows us what God is like. That Jesus coming as a child in a, in a, a born in poverty reveals and fulfills all of God's promises to us. And that lastly, Jesus fulfills all of our requirements to God. For me, this is what the Christmas story is about. It's not just a means to, the, to an end. It's not just the thing that explains who Jesus is so we can then understand the cross. But it's a significant um, part. It's a significant uh, part of revelation of God's love for us. So if you have your Bibles uh, with you, turn with me to Luke uh, chapter 2. We're going to be spending a little bit of time in there this evening. Luke chapter 2. Let's start at verse 1. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And so Luke is opening his uh, infancy na uh, narrative, his birth narrative, with this really interesting statement. And if you think, if you look at it, first thing you go, well, why doesn't Luke just give us a date? Why is he kind of vaguely telling us what is the political situation around? I was born in 1985, and it was almost be, it would almost be like me when I write my autobiography, and I will write my autobiography, and you will be named individually. And I said this, when Matthew was born, Margaret Thatcher was prime minister, and Coca-Cola had introduced new Coke. And you're like, okay, 
what does that mean? I, I, I mean, that's useful information, but that doesn't give me any additional information about Matthew. That doesn't show anything. That doesn't help me locate the date. I then now need to go and take these facts, look them up, and find out, okay, that's 1985. And so what Luke is doing is not trying to um, uh, locate this into a, a particular year. But he's wanting his reader, he's wanting dear Theophilus, who he's writing to, to start to see that there is this contrast between this heavenly king and the, and the perception of worldly power. Writing in the days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, Luke is already starting to compare the true king of kings with this imposter in Rome. And Luke sets this up as a theme again and again in his gospel. We see that he is wanting to kind of compare and contrast that Jesus, who really has true authority and true power, is coming up again and again against illegitimate power and authority. We see this in the interactions between Jesus and Caiaphas and the high priest. We see this in the interactions of Jesus and the temptations given to him by Satan. We see this in the interactions of Jesus and Pilate, that all three of these religious, political, and spiritual powers actually hold no authority to the true king of kings. And so what Luke is doing is he's wanting us to start asking these questions. What was Caesar Augustus like? And why then is Jesus subverting what was understood by power and authority? You see, human power and authority will always be about self-gain and self-preservation. Yet here is this king who gives his own life for others. Human power and authority will also try and control and centralize power. But yet here is this king who, who openly welcomes people into, a king, into his kingdom and share in his inheritance. I think one of the problems that we have is so often when we come to Jesus, what we do is we project our own insecurities onto Jesus. We say, well, I feel weak, therefore, uh, or I feel yeah, weak, it's all politically, therefore, Jesus must be politically strong. I feel that I have no um, kind of power or control in this world, therefore, Jesus must have power and control. And so the problem when we do this then is that we see Jesus more of a Caesar than we do as God incarnate. Caesar is this really um, interesting uh, fi uh, figure, Caesar Augustus. He was the uh, adopted son to Julius Caesar. And Julius Caesar in around 49 BC, he declared himself to be a living God. He gave himself the title God and Savior. And over the next four years, as he put down the, the Roman Civil War, he acquired additional titles like um, Unconquered God, Father of the Fatherland. He got statues set up that said that, that in Caesar's name, liberation comes. And so then Caesar's Augustus, after uh, Julius Caesar is brutally murdered on the Senate floor, takes the throne and he carries on this same uh, imperial cult. He declares himself that he is the true son of God, that he is Lord and Savior, that whenever Caesar Augustus would invade into a new land, he would send apostles, he would send 
messengers ahead who would go and proclaim the good news, the evangelion of the king is coming. But this good news was won by the sword. This good news was won by the oppression and slavery of thousands and millions of people. This good news was brought about by the death and suffering of many. This was the golden era. This was the new kingdom that Caesar Augustus is ushering in. See, we'd have statements that said, peace through the sword. This is the season of divine peace. But it came at the cost of bloodshed for many. And this is the context that Jesus is born into. This is the, the paradigm. This is the comparison that Luke is starting to set up. Here is this unrighteous man declaring himself son of God. And here is this savior born in a manger. So Jesus shows us what God is like. As we have been going through the Colossians series, one of the things we've been referring to back again and again is this ancient hymn that the early church was singing. And part of this hymn, they, they, they declare that Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. In the opening lines of Luke's gospel, he says that in, beginning, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The early church grasped, the early church knew that when you look at Jesus, what you're seeing is God. Not just a reflection of God, not just a, an approximation of God, but you are seeing God. And so the way that we look at Jesus, the way we see how Jesus interacts with people, the way that we even see Jesus born into this lowly station is a revelation of the heart that God has for us. The God of the universe chooses to come, not in the power and the might of Caesar, but in the humility of a peasant. Caesar was born in the splendor and wealth of the palace, yet Jesus was born in the poverty of a manger. Caesar's, Caesar was attended by midwives and doctors and staffs at his birth, yet Jesus entered the world among cattle. Jesus was, uh, Caesar was surrounded by the protection of Roman legion, yet Jesus had to escape to Egypt to avoid being slaughtered. Caesar would go on to control the known world and bring about this kingdom of peace through his sword. But Jesus would die at the hand of power and usher in a kingdom of peace through love. You see, what the world was looking for was a savior that looked like Caesar. But that picture is not the God that we worship. That's not the God that we serve. That's not the God that created you and me. God chose to identify with the lowly and common man. God chose to experience our pain and our brokenness. God chose to identify with our struggle. 
Jesus was ushering in a kingdom where the real currency of power is not in military might, but in self-sacrifice. And so what that means then is that Christmas is the start of the revolution. It's the start of Jesus undermining the political powers. It was the start of the rebellion where no longer would the brokenness and the bondage of this world be the thing that dictates uh, structure and political power. But instead, Jesus would come and subvert that and reveal the true authority of God. I think it's amazing as we walk around and we hear these Christmas carols. And the problem is we've heard them so many times that we, they somehow lose their meaning. They lose their, their kind of... Um, uniqueness, but these are songs of rebellion. These are songs of defilement. These are songs saying that we will not accept the way things are here on earth, but we choose to celebrate a different reality. We choose to celebrate the reality of God's kingdom here on earth, this upside down kingdom where the first shall be last, where in our weakness we are made strong, where losing our life means that we gain our life for eternity. Christmas is the start of the revolution. And I think one of the things that the devil has done is that he has put so much commercialism, so much sentimentality, so much just it's about feel good and peace and goodwill to all men that we've lost the revolutionary cry that Christmas is. Jesus entering into our world is the statement of God saying that the status quo no longer has to maintain. You no longer have to be defined by your sin and your brokenness in your pain. There is a new way. There is a new life. There is a new birth that is an offer through Jesus. And so Jesus fulfills all of God's promises to us. Harry and, uh, and Meghan, again, I end up talking about the royal family. I'm not a royalist in the slightest, but they provide such great sermon illustrations. Obviously, Meghan is uh, pregnant. She will give birth uh, in the spring sometime. The first person who must be informed when, uh, when she gives birth is the queen. Megan is not allowed to WhatsApp anyone, text anyone, phone anyone. He's not allowed to let her mum know, her sisters know. Until the queen knows, nothing can be said. There is this strict royal protocol. There's this sense that royalty needs to be respected, that power and establishment needs to be expected, uh, respected. But we read later down in Luke 2, verse 10, that after the birth of Jesus, and I love that Luke just has this simple line. He says in verse 6 that Jesus was born and he was wrapped in cloth. There's something beautiful about that simplicity. But the first people who hear about it are not the kings of this world, are not the establishment of power, but a group of lowly shepherds out in a field. Now, the thing we have to bear in mind is to be a shepherd basically means that you have flunked out of school. It means that you have failed your exams. It means that, you know, you just, you weren't the smartest, whatever you want to say. To be a nighttime shepherd was to be the worst of the worst. I mean, that was saying, you're not even good at being a shepherd. And so these are the people that the angels appear to. And we read in verse 10 this. This is the angel speaking. Fear not, for, I be, uh, for behold, 
I bring you good news. You hear this imperial language. You hear this, this language of Caesar that, that, that the angels are subverting. This is a different power. This is a different authority. I bring to you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you, born this day in the city of David, is a Savior who is Christ the Lord. These are the titles that Caesar ascribed to himself. But here are the angels saying, actually, the true Savior, the true Lord, the true Redeemer is found in this Christ child. Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace, not peace through the sword, but peace through sacrifice will be among those in whom he is pleased. In Jesus, we see the fulfillment of God's promise. We see the fulfillment of God saying, I'm not going to leave my people to be stuck in their sin and their brokenness. That from the dawn of eternity, I always had a plan. This wasn't a backup plan. This wasn't plan B. But I always knew that it would cost me everything that I had to bring them into relationship with me. In Jesus, this infant child, we see the fulfillment of all of God's promises. But also amazingly, we see the fulfillment of all our requirements to God. You see, through God taking on humanity, through God stepping into our story, through God, as it says, as Paul writes to the church in Corinth, that he was made, uh, for our sake, he, was, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. God entering in to the virgin birth, this Christ child, fully God, fully man. He was the only sufficient sacrifice to deal with our sin. And so as we look at that child in the manger, as we look at that child laying on straw and wood, we have to remember that in the future, he will be nailed to a cross for us. We cannot separate the manger from the cross. We cannot separate the feel-goodness of, of, of Christmas Day without the despair of, of, East, of Easter Friday, of Good Friday, and then Resurrection Sunday. The two are two halves of the same coin. They're two halves of the same story. When we look at the manger, when we look at this nativity scene, when we look at this Christ child, we know we have the promise that all who choose to believe that he is truly Lord and Savior could be reconciled to God. Caesar said he would bring salvation, but it was at the cost of many millions. Jesus brought salvation through the giving of his, his own life. And so who is this Christ? He is Jesus. He is the one who thunders through the heavens, yet he whispers to our heart. Who reigns victorious but serves, but bows to serve the broken. He is God in the fury, and he is God in the silence. He holds this mystery balanced in his hands. 
He holds our questions until they lose their need, until all we see is Him. And so our call, the challenge this Christmas is to look upon this manger and see the hope of the world. It was that silent night for you and me when the stars turned their gaze.